Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and there's Jerry over there. So this is Stuff You Should Know about the Tuskegee Airmen. That's right. One of our, uh, I know every year we try to do a uh, Black History Month podcast, at least one. And uh, didn't mean to keep everyone on suspense this year, <laughs> right here at the end of the month. But this one, uh, we were getting this one put together. Yeah, this is a good one. Yeah, and it's. Uh, I mean, this is we, we typically like to do stuff that's like very little known history. Right. I would say Tuskegee Airmen is is does not fall into the little known category. Not at all. Yet still undersung, I think, even after two not very good feature films. Oh, did you see any of them? I, I, the only one I'm familiar with was, um, I think it's just called the Tuskegee Airmen, and I kept confusing it with Memphis Bell. Yeah, Tuskegee Airmen was an HBO movie with Larry Fishburne and mm-hmm. others. Malcolm, Malcolm Jamal Warner, I think. Yeah, yeah. Good seeing him. Sure. <laughs> Always. But, uh, I mean, that one was okay, but I think better than the Red Tails movie. Was it? Uh, yeah, Red Tails just wasn't very good, yeah. which is a shame. Sure. But speaking of shame, (laughs) let's talk about how the Tuskegee Airmen were treated. Just to get started, um, we should kind of briefly go over like the history of African Americans in the military. Because where we really pick up with our story, the interwar period between World War I and World War II, um, the military was very much segregated still, officially, just like America was. It was law. Segregation was law at the time. But that's not to say that um, African Americans hadn't served in the military in the U.S. previously uh, in some pretty substantial roles, too. Yeah, I mean, dating back to, like, when they were not even considered Americans, like when, when uh, I mean, I keep wanting to say black Americans, but they were not considered that, like, during the Revolutionary War, mm-hmm. um, on both sides, actually, as you'll learn in a, in a short stuff yeah. about black loyalists. It's interesting that slaves fought for and against uh, the Revolution. Mm-hmm. Really interesting. All the way up through, and, you know, we should do podcasts on a lot of these things, but they fought in the War of 1812. Uh, They fought as the Buffalo Soldiers in uh, many of the conflicts against Native Americans. Uh, All the way up through World War I, uh, where they uh, joined the Army, despite the fact that there was segregation at home and in the military. Mm -hmm. Um, Notably, the Harlem Hellfighters, who uh, fought with the French and even though Americans did not fully recognize that as an accomplishment, the French government did, ironically. Yeah, if, if that sounds kind of weird to you, the uh, the American military had an all-black regiment and said, here, you take them to, to France. And France was like, sure, we'll take them, we'll use them. Right. And awarded them the Croix de Guerre for heroism in combat, um, which is like, if you'll remember our Native American Code Talker episode, yeah. Fr- France, especially in World War One, had kind of a history of awarding and recognizing bravery among minorities that were just c- totally shunned to the United States, you know? Yeah, and I mean, there was even a, uh, a study conducted by the Army War College in 1925 about the fitness and suitability of black soldiers in the military, and it was just, it was brutal and racist and you know, just said the worst things you could imagine about the the lack of fitness for a black man to serve for the Americans in the American military. 
Yeah, and I think this Army War College study was basically just a an official position paper that that summed up the sentiments right uh, uh, among military officers and most of the military at the time um that they just wanted to get it down on paper as like an official position so that that it, it wouldn't be eroded that they could say this is the military's official position yeah. on black people and essentially what it said was black people are not intellectually capable of receiving like theoretical training they um they can probably be, you know, um, worked into, uh, like, combat troops, but it's going to take a lot more effort, and you really have to dumb it down, and then maybe you can organize them into a combat troop, but really, we don't have high hopes for this, so we should probably just not mess with the whole thing and just keep it an all-white military. Yeah, and that, that was in 1925, and despite all of this, there were still black soldiers who achieved in the military— uh, most notably, and the reason we bring this uh, this gentleman up, Benjamin O. Davis Sr. Uh, in 1940 became the first black general in the U.S. military. He figures prominently in the Tuskegee Airmen story in that his son, Benjamin Davis Jr., uh, well, well, we'll tell you what he did, but he figured very prominently in the formation and story of the Tuskegee Airmen. Yeah, he's huge. He's um one of the leading figures, and he gets most of the glory in the press and everything, but there were plenty of others who, who served quite valiantly. Yeah, so that that's like the briefest of summations. I definitely think we should do one on the Buffalo Soldiers at some point. Totes agree. Like, I don't understand why Bob Marley drew that, that um, line between Rastas and Buffalo Soldiers. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Like, yeah. I know this, it sounds like a hilarious thing that Josh would say, uh-huh. but I'm, I have always, always wondered that. Like, what is he talking about? What's the, you know, uh, were they were they Rastas or something like that? Or is it, did they have the spirit of the Rasta or vice versa? I'd, I'd love to get to the bottom of that. All right. Let's do it. Okay. All right. I'm excited. So that brings us to World War II. Um, and like you said before, segregation is still... Uh, the law in the United States, uh, race, racism was rampant and still is in a lot of places in the, in this country, but back then very much rampant. Uh, and despite all that, there were still plenty of African-Americans who wanted to be in the Army and wanted to fly planes. And uh, this was pre-Air Force. It was called the uh, the Army Air Corps. Yes. And we should say, like, this was extremely prestigious to be in the Army Air Corps. It was far and away the most prestigious branch of the military, although it wasn't technically its own branch, but the um, the it was the most prestigious part of the, the military um, because it was widely considered, and rightfully so, you had to be really, really sharp, really smart, really quick on your toes, and just really large and in charge, basically, to fly planes in the military. It was still pretty new. It was a fairly new thing. And the the whole the whole world, but also the US, really looked up to aviators at the time because this was at a time where <clears throat> if you flew across country, you just you, you just made history kind of thing. Right. So to to um to be a part of the Army Air Corps, that was a that's a sweet plum right there. Yeah, and so you know, we, we move over to Alabama at the Tuskegee Institute in Tuskegee. Mm-hmm. And this was a place where you, if you were a black American and you wanted to go to college and get a higher education, that was a great place to start. 
uh, founded in 1881 by Lewis Adams and Booker T. Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, and during this period, they had something called the Civilian Pilot Training Program, uh, which is – it was established basically to get a pool of pilots with experience, mm-hmm. uh, people who could train pilots in the United States – and there were black colleges participating in this program, and Tuskegee was one of them. Yeah, the uh, Howard University also had a program. Um, there were also, like, by this time, there was some um, black aviation history that had been established. And it was small, but it was really proud, and rightfully so, because if you were an African-American and you said, you know what, I really look up to all these pilots, too. I want to go be a pilot. The first door you went to got slammed in your face. Mm -hmm. The next door you went to, slammed in your face. And again, like the idea that black people couldn't learn how to fly a plane, so how are you going to let one fly a plane or try to teach them? What's the point? It's also probably pretty dangerous and expensive. Um, like you could not, as an African-American, get into a flight school. And so some of these earliest African-American pilots in aviation history in like the, say, like the 20s, the early 30s, like some of them were self-taught. There's a guy yeah. named C-, C. Alfred Anderson who taught himself how to fly and land planes because no flight school would teach him. No white pilots would teach him. He had to save up, buy his own plane, and teach himself. And he became a legend. He's known as the father of black aviation in America. Yeah, and there's, a, like you said, a very small but proud list. Uh, Bessie Coleman uh, was a black woman mm-hmm. who went to France to learn to fly. She was black and Native American. Yeah, we should. she should get her on episode two. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1932, uh, James Banning and Thomas Allen became the first black pilots to fly across the U.S. from L.A. to New York, and they, as well, at least Banning, uh, could not go to flight school, so he basically found a white pilot who would give him private lessons, mm-hmm. which is pretty remarkable. Yeah. Um, and the, the cool thing about this story is they uh, it costs a lot of money to fly across the country at right. any point. So, right. the, so they would stop in black communities and raise money basically and say, hey, get you know, donate some cash. You can sign our airplane and that will allow us to buy fuel to get to the next stop as we go across country. Yeah. So they became the first black pilots to fly all the way across the U.S. as a result, which is that's pretty great. But it was like the, it was it was stories like this and people like these um, who were profiled in the black press at the time. The I don't want to say I guess the press was pretty much segregated, at least for all practical purposes. Yeah. African America had its own um, press, and the, I guess the the standard establishment press was just writing stories about white people only um, or things that related to white people. So African-Americans had their own press. So stories of people like this um, spread throughout the country and inspired like whole new generations of pilots. And it also inspired, like you said, the Tuskegee Institute and Howard University and some other private schools like one formed by Cornelius Coffey and Willa Brown in Chicago to actually start training black pilots. And so this was a this is already established by the time the drum beat the earliest drum beat to World War II started and um the the US led by Franklin Roosevelt said we need to get the civilian pilot training program going because we need a pool of people who already know how to fly in case we need to turn them into military pilots as well. Yeah, and the the idea here with these uh with the black uh, journalists and newspapers was 
here, here's what we want. You know, there's the V for Victory slogan and campaign. Mm-hmm. Let's start up something and get the word out called the Double V campaign, which is basically uh, victory in Europe, but also uh, for black soldiers, victory at home in trying to make a dent in discrimination and racism. Mm-hmm. If we go over there and we can fight and we can fly planes and serve our country, maybe that might make a difference when we come back home that we were, you know, distinguished with our military service. So that was the double V campaign trying to get victory at home against racism, as well as in Europe on the ground with the military. And none of this might've happened had it not been for one Eleanor Roosevelt. And maybe we should take a break there. Oh, nice cliffhanger. (laughs) Yeah. What does Eleanor Roosevelt have to do with all this? We'll find out in just a minute. All right, Chuck, so, I mean, I'm just going to say it. Eleanor Roosevelt, give it up. Yeah, man. I mean, she was a great lady in a lot of ways, but uh, what she did in the case of the uh, eventual Tuskegee Airmen was she visited Tuskegee. Um, They had a training airfield uh, called uh, Moton Field, M-O-T-O-N. Yeah, because remember, this is like their their flying program that they already established. Yeah, so she visits. uh, She's watching the pilots take off, fly around, land, and she was like, could I get in one of those planes? That is a <laughs> bitchin' Eleanor Roosevelt, man. And they said, sure. So she went up uh, with an African-American pilot. She she went up with that C. Alfred Anderson, the self-taught father of aviation. Yeah, and everything went great, and she had a, apparently a good time, went back home and got in her husband's ear and was like, hey, these these guys can fly planes. They're doing a great job. Mm-hmm. They're fit for military service. So let's let's get this thing going in earnest. And he did so uh, in January of 1941. So here's the thing. This is what I'm unclear on. I, like it's it's doubtless that Eleanor Roosevelt played a, a role in making sure that this this actually happened. That that um, African American pilots were eligible to fly for the U.S. military, the Army Air Corps, right? But the timing of it, I can't quite suss out. Either the the U.S. military said, yeah, we're going to establish a black pilot's training program at Tuskegee uh, in January 1941. And then Eleanor Roosevelt showed up a couple months later to make sure that this actually happened. Or she showed up and then they established it. I can't quite suss that out. But either way, she's a pretty cool lady. Like she went down and saw for herself and then came back and said, hey, we really should make this happen. Or she knew that this was happening, but also could see people just dragging their feet. So she went down to shine light on the whole pros- the project, and uh, it kind of took off from there, if you'll forgive the pun. <laughs> Either way, she, she played some sort of pretty cool role in, in getting it going. Yeah, and, and when it first started, there was, uh, it was sort of a joint affair between Tuskegee and the Army Air Corps as far as uh, providing funding and equipment. Uh, personnel, they all sort of chipped in a little bit. Um, they were flying a few different planes for training. Uh, one biplane, the Stearman PT-17. Uh, eventually, they were able to move over to the Tuskegee Army Airfield a few miles away from Moton Field, where they had access to the P-40 Warhawk. Mm-hmm. And then they were like, now we're talking. 
Right. But also, I mean, the initial primary training at Moton Field was this kind of quasi-university military training, almost like an ROTC error training program. And then once you graduated from primary, you moved over to the Army field, and you were full-on on a military base in military life. Yeah, and this like this, this wasn't the first time that uh, black pilots tried to apply. Like pre-Tuskegee, they were applying, uh, recruits were applying and getting rejected every time they tried to get into the Air Corps. Mm-hmm. Uh, eventually, the NAACP got involved. A lawsuit was filed. Um, and even after that, when they started admitting uh, black men into the Air Corps, it was 10 cadets every five weeks. So they were, you know, it, it looks like they were purposefully just sort of stymieing the process right. through red tape and bureaucracy to still not allow them to train. Yeah, and initially, so that that lawsuit um, was by a Howard University student named Yancey Williams who wanted to be a just straight-up Army Air Corps cadet, and the NAACP backed backed the lawsuit. Um, And the result was apparently the the military saying, okay, we'll just start a segregated all-black pilot program where the NAACP and most black leadership wanted just integration in the Army Air Corps. So they were like, uh, okay, fine, we'll take it. But we're not, like, this is not what we were, were going for, but we'll take this. It's better than nothing, I guess. Yeah, that's that's probably a good way to put it. Um, but the program starts up in earnest. Uh, however few cadets they were allowing, it started to build up. These men are getting trained. Um, men from the North came down, and this is, you know, this is in Alabama during the Jim Crow era. Right. And there are uh, there's one documentary called They Fought Two Wars, which basically was like, you know, they're getting trained, they're serving their country, and then they go out like on the weekend maybe for a little R&R, and then they're met by the Southern Whites of Alabama who basically, you know, treated them exactly how you would expect. There was even a petition to end the program just because they were like, there are so many black men in our town now. We don't want them in our community. Right. Surely something bad will happen to our community because of this. There was also apparently at least one incident where uh, black military police were disarmed by white locals around Tuskegee. Civilians. Yeah. uh, Who just refused to recognize that they had any authority over them whatsoever, military police or not. Um, And the, the... at the time, this this happened early on. The commander of the um, of the base, uh, Ellison James Ellison, Major James Ellison, was um, he protested very loudly and very vocally and said, "This is messed up. Uh, I won't stand for this." And they said, "Hey, Ellison, um, yeah, we need somebody who is on the side of the recruits, but maybe not quite so much of a true believer. So you come over here with us, and we're going to relieve you of your post." And instead, they brought in a guy named Colonel Noel Parrish. And he was maybe a little less gung-ho about civil rights and equality and desegregation. Um, he, he very much withstood and, and stood up with the segregationist policies of the military. He didn't fight against it. But within this framework, he's very much credited for um, being very fair, very even-handed, um, and giving, like, full-throated uh, legitimately good um, quality training to these black recruits at Tuskegee. Like he wasn't, they weren't getting um, like subpar 
or, or less than adequate training compared to their white counterparts elsewhere. They were getting just as good training to be trained. Like he was taking it seriously and he was being fair about it. So um, he's, he's respected for, for that, to, to have overseen this, um, this, this project, I guess, fairly rather than he very easily could have gone to the other side and right. just dragged his feet too or put up unnecessary roadblocks and obstacles too, but he didn't. Yeah, and one of the, uh, I guess you could call it one of the silver linings of the segregation in the military was there was already a, uh, the 99th Pursuit Squadron was already established, which were black cadets to get training on maintenance and tech support for uh, for the for the air patrol. So they were already in place. So by the time Tuskegee gets rolling and these cadets are being sent in to learn to fly, they were mm-hmm. like, let's just give them the 99th Pursuit Squadron. So it was basically an all-black unit from the maintenance to the to the technical support to the pilots that were training, obviously not the uh, instructors. Mm-hmm. But I get the feeling, you know, from research that that lent um, some sort of a uh, – it kind of led to camaraderie in that they had their own guys on the ground and training, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, like, it was an all, basically an all-black squadron. And not all the commanders um, or trainers were – uh, white, like that, my favorite guy, Chief uh, Alfred Anderson, um, he was the ground commander in chief, that self-taught father of aviation. Yeah. He um, he was the head of the, the ground commanders at Tuskegee. So there was a mix, but f- one of the things I think you kind of hit upon that gets overlooked is when you talk about Tuskegee and the Tuskegee Airmen, um, you're talking about 400 to 500-ish pilots, fighter pilots typically, um, that are thought of as the Tuskegee Airmen. But there were so many more people that made up like this whole project, uh, this whole movement basically, um, that I think there was something like 12,000 like people trained in aviation through the, the, that that are really technically Tuskegee Airmen is right. what they are um, considered. Um, so, and they get overlooked a lot because the fighter pilots get all the glory. Sure. But, I mean, these all these people played a huge significant role in the whole thing. Yeah, so we mentioned uh, at the onset the first African-American general, Benjamin O. Davis Sr., and that his son figured prominently. Yeah. So that's Ben Jr. Uh, he comes in. He went to – he followed in dad's footsteps. He went to West Point where – you know, despite it was sort of like a Lords of Discipline sort of scene there. Oh man, I forgot about that book. Yeah, man, that was good. Good movie. Um, I mean, brutal to watch, but a really good movie. Mm-hmm. But Davis basically went to West Point, didn't give him a roommate, made him eat by himself. Uh, they say that he was like literally not spoken to by anybody unless they absolutely had to speak to him. Yet he persevered through all this. He graduated. And uh, went to teach at uh, Tuskegee instead of going to command for enlisted troops. So it was a bit of serendipity that he ended up there, I think, kind of right at the same time this Air Corps began, which is really, really kind of cool. Yeah, one of the first things he did was, um, as he was, I think, became the commander of the 99th Pursuit Squadron, um, he also was one of their first graduates. He was in the first class to graduate from flight school there. So, um I I I don't know that he had much flight training prior to that, but he went and learned and became pretty distinguished as a pilot uh, either way. But he he was immediately assigned 
the 99th Pursuit Squadron. He was in charge of it, which is pretty cool, right? So um, as the as the um, the Tuskegee Airmen started to distinguish themselves, which we'll talk about more in a minute, um, Davis kind of became distinguished as well because he was leading the whole show. Yeah, and, you know, he he had been through West Point. He knew what the deal was. He was like, he knew that there was a lot more riding on this than just forming an air squadron. Mm-hmm. He was like, black people all around the country are looking at us. They're banking on our success. Um, we have to, like, we have to be better than the best. Um, and so he was really tough. He, tough but fair, but he would not put up with, with anything that took away from their ultimate goal which was to be the best airman in the country, black or white. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently, there were black pilots who would wash out of the program that historians say, like, it, it, you know, if that was a white pilot, he would have been allowed to keep going. Like, that's how high the standard was that Davis set for the Tuskegee Airmen. Right. Well, it wasn't just Davis. I think I think they were saying, like, they were unfairly um, not given their wings, whereas a white pilot elsewhere in another base – undergoing training wouldn't have washed out. So some of the pilots that that did wash out probably did because they were being held to unfair racist standards, not necessarily by Davis, but by some of the white commanders and trainers. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, but I saw where Davis was very quick to to give someone the ouster if they didn't think they were living up to their position. Yeah, so the upshot of that, though, Chuck, was that... um, the, the the people who graduated from this program at Tuskegee were really, really good pilots. Yeah. I mean, really good pilots. They were just held to, whether fair or unfair, higher standards. They had to prove themselves more than, say, their white counterparts at other bases. And so the ones who actually did manage to graduate were just as good as it got. But what's sad is for the people who washed out, they might not have washed out of some of the other programs. Yeah. Like if they had been white elsewhere in another program. Um, so that in and of itself is is kind of demoralizing. But what really gets you is when you step back and realize, like, the 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 men who were going through pilot training program were the face of black America. Yeah. And so not only were they being watched by, you know, um, by racist whites— and supportive whites too, but but say from racist whites to just watch for them to fail. I think Henry L. Stimson, who was the Secretary of War, said, "Sure, we're going to give them a shot, but I expect nothing less than disaster to be produced by this." And I think he meant like literal disaster, like planes crashing everywhere, kind of thing. So not only did you have like that kind of observation going on you at all times, you also carried with you the uh, hopes and dreams and expectations of. Black America, and not just Black America and something big and amorphous and vague like that, but your family and your church group and your community uh, back home were all like pulling for you, but also really expecting everything from you. And if you graduated, that was huge. And if you washed out, I'm sure that was equally huge in the other direction. Yeah. So March uh, 1942 is when the first class of cadets graduated. Um, it would take another like four months or so, five months to get enough pilots, you know, graduating through the program that they were a full fighter squadron. And the early results, you know, there were there were uh, very high ranking U.S. officials that were pretty impressed early on, including 
uh, that Secretary of War Stimson that you you talked about that predicted disaster. Yeah, he had a change of heart. Yeah, he visited Tuskegee and said the outfit looks as good as any I've ever seen. Uh, Major General James Ulio said from results so far obtained, it is believed that the squadron will give an excellent account of itself in combat and that it will be a credit to its race and to Americans everywhere. Um, and despite this, it still took a long time to get the full confidence to actually send them into the theater of war in Europe. Well, yeah, and I don't even know if it was confidence. I think, well, I guess it was confidence in a way, but there were other commanders of, at the time they called them air forces, where it was like squadrons and groups just put together like a huge mass of of um, air corps subdivisions were called air forces at the time. So if you were running the show in an air force, you'd be like, I don't want them. I don't want them. And all of them were saying, I don't want them. You, they couldn't give them away. So they were just stuck in America while um, the United States had already joined World War II and was all fighting in places like North Africa and the Mediterranean. Yeah, and I think, you know, I don't know if this is confirmed, but mm-hmm. some say that Eleanor Roosevelt got in her husband's ear once again. Uh, and finally, in uh, what, April 1943, they got their first orders, the 99th, to go to North Africa mm-hmm. uh, in 1943, which was, what is that, like two years after the first graduated class. Yeah. So, you know, the upshot to this, though, is they're still training this whole time. Right. Right. They're just getting better and better in training. But can you imagine, like, having to sit around and wait like Oh, I know. That, Waiting for their orders. wanting to get out there. Yeah. So, um, some of the first... Uh, assignments they got when they were um, running sorties off of North Africa. Um, they were, at th- there was an island called Panatella, I believe. Isn't that a kneecap? <laughs> uh, it's Pantelleria. Pantelleria. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that was way off. Thank you for correcting yes. me. Um, Pantelleria was occupied by the Italian army and they gave up. They surrendered the island without any ground forces having to land because the Tuskegee airmen were bombing them so bad. They were sent on dive bombing campaigns, and that usually consists of attacking uh, a ground position, whether it's like um, some sort of transport, like transport planes and an airfield or rail cars or, um, you know, gas or water infrastructure, just stuff to make the enemy rather uncomfortable or unable to operate in this place that they've occupied. Um, and it very rarely uh, requires any kind of aerial dogfighting like we think of with fighter right. fighter pilots. It's more just attacking the enemy where they are rather than trying to battle for domination of the skies. That's what a dogfight is. It's what um, fighter-to-fighter combat is. Yeah. <clears throat> so this is different. So you're not going to encounter other fighters typically. So you're not going to have as many kills. They don't count like blowing up a, a set of rail cars as a kill. You have to shoot another fighter plane out of the sky and that's what they really count when you're a fighter pilot. But if you're not being assigned those kind of uh, sorties, you're not going to rack up kills like that. So everybody understood this. This was fine. But apparently somebody was talking to the press back in America and ended up getting a story out of Time magazine that questioned the uh, 99th Fighter Squadron's bravery because they've been flying all sorts of sorties, but where were all their kills? All these other white pilots had all these kills. Where was the Tuskegee Airmen's kills? And the the context of that wasn't put into that that magazine. So what the rest of America read was, the Tuskegee Airmen are cowards. And all of a sudden, Benjamin O. Davis Jr. finds himself being called back to Washington to explain 
why his squadron are being called cowards in the national press. That's right. So let's pick that up right after this message, uh, because things changed in January of 1944. All right, so the Tuskegee Airmen are over there uh, doing these, um, you know, they're dropping bombs. They did get a little bit of um, fighter-to-fighter action, but not enough, you know, to, to ward the press off. Uh, this is despite the fact that they had uh, virtually, um, you know, they were still segregated. You know, what they usually did was say, here, let's mix in these uh, these new guys with some experienced guys, mm-hmm. and they can sort of mentor them and help them out. Because it was segregated, they kept them separate. And yet they still persevere through all this. Uh, like you said before the break, Davis comes home to the U.S. to sort of battle these reports. Uh, and then things took a, a real change in January of 1944. There was a, a patrol unit of 12 planes uh, flying over Anzio, and they spotted these German fighters, uh, just like like Maverick and Goose in Top Gun. Right. Although they were just training, right? <laughs> There was was never any real battle in Top Gun, right? No, there wasn't a battle, but they did engage that MiG. Remember, he flew upside down and flipped him off and took a Polaroid? So dumb. So They're doing a sequel to that, you know? Uh, Like a sequel with Tom Cruise and... Yeah. uh, Really? Yeah, yeah. It's exactly what you would think. It's Hmm. Tom Cruise is now the veteran instructor and and a young maverick comes under his watch. Oh, boy. And Who's the young Maverick going to be? I don't even know. I'm not even sure. But it's I'm sure it's one of those deals where, you know, Cruz gets to say, like, I was you. <laughs> yeah, I'll bet he does. I'm going to toss Christian Navarro's hat in the ring. How about that? Uh, well, the, I, I, the I think they've already guy. cast it, but uh, yeah. you never know. <laughs> maybe maybe we've got some pull, Chuck, and we just influenced <laughs> Yeah, Christian, if you're listening, we're, we're rooting for you, my friend. <laughs> so uh, they see these German fighters, these 12 planes, and they're like, let's go get them, fellas. Uh, and they get into a dogfight, pretty legendary dogfight, and they record five kills in about four or five minutes. No That's losses. That's pretty fast. No losses. That's a big one, too. Yeah, and it was a very big deal for the 99th. Uh, after that, and this was like after these reports had come into the U.S., they weren't like, they were fairly dejected, but that made them hungrier than ever. And this is why they sort of flung themselves uh, headlong into this attack. And they made the news, and they became known all of a sudden as these pilots that would really go after the Germans. They have a high kill rate, and it was a big deal. Yeah, so there's two other things. So not only um, were they were they not being assigned missions typically that would rack up high kill rates, so how can you criticize them for that? But secondly, when they were in North Africa in their first assignment, they were given really old, really obsolete planes, and they were, um, when they did engage uh, German uh, fighter pilots, they were out outclassed as far as the planes are concerned, and they were still taking out uh, Germans in dogfights. So, like, they had a lot going against them and still managed to prove themselves. And then something really big changed. They got transferred over to the, um, I believe, the 15th Air Force, and the 99th, the 100th, the 301st and the 302nd, the four Tuskegee um, 
fighter pilot squadrons were all brought together under the 332nd Fighter Group, under the command now of Benjamin O. Davis Jr. He's a colonel at this point. Yep. Who uh, and then placed under the 15th Air Force, and the 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 Benjamin O. Davis Jr. and the guy who headed up the 15th Air Force. They they had uh, the same philosophy for the kinds of assignments that the Tuskegee Airmen would be carrying out from now on, which were bomber escorts. And it was, don't leave the bomber squadron. Like, when you're escorting bombers, that's the point. You don't, you don't peel off and chase after any other jets that are, like any German jets that are coming toward you. And there were German jets, but German fighter planes. Um, and you don't chase them away. You just stay with the, the bombers. That's your point. And um, that's another thing that's not like you're not going to rack up a ton of kills in that respect. Yeah, I'm sure it was but, tough, like, especially given their reputation, they wanted to go shoot down German planes. Exactly. And Davis was like, no, man, you got to, like, uh, you got to be disciplined. And these these bombers are under threat, and you got to stick with them. And so, um, as a result of this, they developed, like, a really great reputation for for safely escorting bombers to their destination. I mean, if you're a part of a bomber fleet, you're flying behind enemy lines to go bomb a city or an oil refinery or something like that. And the purpose of these planes is not to shoot other planes out of the sky. It's to drop bombs. So you need fighter jets to escort you or fighter planes to escort you to these drop sites. And, um, shoot away any other planes that are going to try to shoot you out of the sky. So it's pretty hairy, but it's also um, like you're protecting the bombers. That's the point. So the uh, reputation that they developed, Chuck, actually became legendary. There was a false false myth that generated around it, but one that even when you peel away the myth and look at reality, it's still pretty impressive. Yeah, and the other thing that helped too was in 1944, you know, we mentioned that they were flying – I mean, they weren't obsolete planes. They were just not as good as what they were flying against. Right. Uh, they finally get the P-51 Mustang, and mm-hmm. they were like, now we're talking, dudes. Like, yeah. this is this is go time. Really cool airplane. One of my favorites of all time is that 51 Mustang. That's the World War II fighter plane that everybody thinks of. Yeah, I mean, it's it's... I want to use words here I can't use on this show to describe it because I get so excited about it. <laughs> but it's pretty sweet. So they now finally had, and you did mention the jet, you know, the, Mi, uh, the ME-262 uh-huh. from Germany was the, the first jet that used in combat like that. And if you look at this thing, it looks like I would rather have the Mustang. This thing looks dangerous to me. It may well have been. I don't know much about it. Oh, you mean to be like the pilot of it? Yeah, I mean, it was just an early small jet. Like, I can't, I don't know. It was probably pretty scary to fly. Or maybe it was great, I don't know. I'm sure it was thrilling. But uh, the 332nd now with their P-51s, they start painting their, you know, we mentioned the movie Red Tails. Uh That comes from what they did on their wing. They painted their, uh, the tail of their plane red. And that they became known for that. It was very distinguishable from the air. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of bomber pilots who, we're like, we want these red tails because these guys are awesome. And some of them didn't even know that they were black uh, pilots. Mm-hmm. They just knew that they were red tails. Right. And, and again, the red tails had developed a really good reputation for escorting bombers to their bomb sites. Um, and what I was think- their rank? What did they lose? Uh, I, I know that for many, many years they said they never lost a bomber, which is so, not true. 
They didn't. One of the uh, newspapers in Chicago, the Chicago Defender, published a story in 1945 that of more than 200 bomber escort missions, the Tuskegee Airmen never lost a bomber. Yeah, I meant is, they as in people, not the Tuskegee right, right. Airmen. But that was the that was the myth that developed that they never lost a bomber. That is basically impossible over something like 200 missions. Yeah. Um, but that's the myth that stood for. Um, like 50, 60 years, something like that. And then finally, an historian with the Air Force, like actually dug in and did the the shoe leather work on it and found, um, no, actually, they did lose some bombers. They lost something like, uh, I think, 26 or 27 bombers. But out of like the 200-something missions, that is still a ridiculously small amount. Yeah, And that other um, squadrons and fighter groups in the 15th Air Force, they averaged something like 47. So almost double what the uh, Tuskegee Airmen saw in losses. So they they had paltry losses. But yeah, the idea that they just wouldn't have ever lost a bomber, is it's it's impossible. You just couldn't yeah. not lose a bomber over that many missions. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we all know how World War II ends. Um, <laughs> spoiler alert. <laughs> the, the Allies... Uh, the Allies did their job. Uh-huh. And so the Tuskegee Airmen start to get sent home, like with other troops over the years. And here's the, you know, that the double V campaign. They were hoping they come home and they are more accepted and they might even be revered. They might get good jobs. They might become commercial airline pilots. None of those things happened. Uh, very sadly, uh, that did not equate to equality back home, which is one of the true, like, black eyes on this country's history, you know? Yeah. Um, some of them, I mean, yeah, that was, it should have just automatically triggered. Well, they shouldn't have, this should have never happened in the first place, right? right? Like dragging feet on segregation and making African America jump through these hoops like this, um, rather than just integrating, like making a segregated uh, Air Air Corps squadron first and letting them prove themselves like that. And then once they prove themselves, still not opening doors or anything like that, Um it, it it that it should have never happened, but the fact that it didn't happen automatically is pretty pretty shameful. It did they, they it's not like they weren't successful though. Oh, they, for sure. They laid the groundwork and they laid the foundation and they began the momentum for a lot of people say the civil rights movement that um the the what they the groundwork that they laid the the way that they changed America's minds about black people in general, like, oh, they actually can fly planes, and oh, they can shoot Germans out of the sky, and oh, look at this, they can actually do better at bomber escorts than white counterparts, right? Um, that change in mentality that they were able to take advantage of in this circumstance in history, that changed everything. So they were very much successful in that. It's just shameful that that they had to just keep fighting and keep pressing on it. This was really just the first step rather than the last. Yeah, for sure. But, I mean, I think that wording is is perfect. It was the groundwork, absolutely the foundation, foundational groundwork was laid. Um, as for Colonel Davis, he, uh, after the war in 1948 is when Truman ended segregation in the military. Mm-hmm. Uh, Colonel Davis advised on that integration and had a great career. He retired in 1970. And in 1998, uh, very cool, was made an honorary general of the Air Force. 
four-star general. So he'd made it to lieutenant general before he retired. Yeah. Um, and I think a four-star lieutenant general, and then Clinton uh, advanced him to general. So he was a four-star general of the Air Force after retirement. That's right. Yeah. Pretty great story. Yeah, it is a pretty great story. There was also something called the Freeman Field Mutiny, which is kind of happening in the off to the side. The, um, the Tuskegee Airmen also formed a bombardier group, a bomber group of bomber pilots that never saw any action, but saw a lot of racism and segregation in back at home during training. And there was one event that's called the Freeman Field Mutiny, where they basically protested segregated officers clubs, segregated and unequal officers clubs, and the way that they protested it um, through basically civil disobedience. But in the military, at a time when you could be executed for disobeying a direct order, which they were given, um, they stood up for their civil rights. And that's another way that, that, that another thing that's pointed to as laying the foundation for the civil rights movement, peaceful civil disobedience. And that actually came out of the Tuskegee Airmen's story as well. Absolutely. Good stuff. Good stuff, Chuck. This is a good idea to cover this one. Yeah, I mean, this was long overdue, but... uh like I said, I don't think we had an article on the the House of Fork site, so we just went out and had it uh, commissioned on our own. Nice work. Uh, well, let's see. If you want to know more about the Tuskegee Airmen, apparently go watch a couple so-so movies. There's some documentaries out there. One of them is called They Fought Two Wars, which is perfectly titled. Um, and there's also, I think, an American experience. There's a lot of stuff. Start reading. Go to Tuskegee, Alabama. Do all that stuff, okay? Yes. And since I said do all that stuff, it's time for listener mail. Uh, I'm going to call this uh, the Tit Project. Hey, guys, just listened to the elephant episode, and Josh mentioned that uh, typically groups of birds and deer don't actually know each other like elephants and recognize one from the other. Mm-hmm. However, I just read an article in a recent Audubon magazine. Um, I know he said typically, but I wanted to point you towards this study that is really interesting, the Witham Tit Project in Britain. Uh, It is a very long-running study where they're looking at the relationships between tits in Britain, and they have found that they run in social groups and appear to have friends. (laughs) Uh, I highly recommend giving it a read. Apparently, these guys must recognize each other, and I actually read it, and that's why I'm recommending it, because it's a really great article. It's 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 from Audubon Magazine, audubon.com, or I'm sorry, .org. Uh, The Surprising Connection Between Birds, Facebook, and Other Social Networks. Huh. Very cool article. So that is from Miranda <clears throat> in Duluth, Minnesota. Nice. You can go read that and have fun, fun, fun on the Autobahn magazine. <laughs> Until Daddy takes your laptop away. <laughs> <laughs> Weird. Uh, that was great, Chuck. I don't think we can improve on that. So we're just going to say if you want to get in touch with us, you can um, join us on all of our social media networks. Uh, go to stuffyoushouldknow.com. It's basically the clearinghouse for links find us hanging out on the social meets uh and you can also send us an email send it to stuff podcast at that's the at symbol howstuffworks.com for more on this and thousands of other topics visit howstuffworks.com <laughs>